Good morning, everyone. As Keith said, our sermon today is from our Luke 2 text, but I want to begin actually with verse 11 of Psalm 96, the psalm we read earlier this morning. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. What a perfect psalm for us today as we continue to celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, because there was great gladness in heaven that morning when an angel of the Lord was sent out to announce the birth of God the Son. And when a multitude of angels went out to glorify him for his incarnation. These are some of the most exciting things angels have ever been sent to do or ever will be. There was great gladness in heaven that morning. And there was great rejoicing on earth too. Among the shepherds who received the angels news. What the shepherds heard and saw that morning filled them with joy and made them glorify God. So that we too may rejoice and glorify God this morning. Let's listen in to what they heard and look at what they saw. We're not going to cover everything in uh, the reading from Luke chapter 2. We're just going to look closely at two scenes. We'll look first at verses 8 to 12, where we'll join the shepherds out in the field and hear what they heard there. Then we'll skip ahead to verse 16 and go with the shepherds into the barn in Bethlehem to see what they saw there. So first the fields in verses 8 to 12, then the manger side in verse 16. So we begin in verse 8 in the fields outside Bethlehem. And in that region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. This would have been just another normal work night for the shepherds, but the angel interrupts their normal routine. And notice that Earth's first response to heaven's intrusion is not to rejoice, but to fear. When the shepherds see the angel of the Lord appear, and they see the glory of the Lord shining around them, they're filled with great fear. And no wonder, seeing an angel of the Lord, seeing the glory of the Lord, these are not exactly the same thing as seeing the Lord himself, but they're pretty close, too close for comfort. The shepherds sense that they're dangerously close to meeting God. And they're filled with great fear. Wouldn't you be? Shouldn't we be? The psalmist says in Psalm 76 verse 7, You, O God, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? And the prophet Malachi in chapter 3, verse 2 of his book says, Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Because we are sinners, it is dangerous for us if God suddenly appears. We've done evil and we've neglected to do good. So how will we be able to stand before the God who preserves goodness and destroys evil? We love what is hateful, and we hate what we ought to love. So how will we be able to endure it when the creator of all that is truly lovely returns to restore his creation to loveliness? As we are, 
we won't be able to stand. We won't be able to endure it. Because we have roused God's anger by our sin, the day of his coming is dangerous to us. So when the shepherds see the angel of the Lord and the glory of the Lord, they're terrified. They're terrified that the Lord himself is about to appear and that they will not be able to stand before him. They're scared to meet God because they know that as sinners, they cannot meet God and live. Well, we sinners have many strategies for dealing with our fear of meeting God. One of our favorites is to just try and avoid God. Just avoid him. We're afraid to meet him, so we try not to meet him. We don't go to places where we think he might show up, and we don't talk to the people who might mention him. We just avoid him. Well, this works for a little while, but not for very long. Sooner or later, we will all meet God. He didn't appear on earth to judge us yesterday, but he might tomorrow. And we aren't dead yet, but we will be soon. Sooner or later, no matter how hard we try to avoid him, we will meet God. But God's desire is not that we should meet him and crumble before his anger. Listen to what he says through the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 33, verse 11. As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God doesn't want us to die, but he doesn't want us to avoid him either. What he does want, what he wants more than anything, is for us to meet with him and live. He wants to make us the kind of people who can stand before him, who can live before him, live with him forever, sharing in his goodness and his love instead of setting ourselves against it. So much as we might sometimes wish that God would just leave us alone and let us avoid meeting him for a little while longer, God in his kindness to us arranges a better thing, a better meeting than we could have ever hoped for. Before he comes to meet us as our judge, he comes to meet us as our savior. The shepherds were filled with great fear, but verse 10 continues, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. They were filled with great fear, but the angel brings them news of great joy. It's by receiving and responding to this good news that earth can join with heaven in rejoicing. So what is this good news that can transform our terror into rejoicing? The good news is that because God loves us, he's doing something to save us from the spiritual danger we've put ourselves in. The good news is that God is sending a savior. Verse 11 for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. The angel's joyful privilege is to bring this news to the shepherds, to God's people and to the whole world. Unto you is born a savior. What does the angel tell us about this savior? A few things, that he's born in the city of David in Bethlehem. 
Bethlehem was David's hometown. And he's born to Mary, Joseph's betrothed. And through his mother's betrothal to Joseph, he's born into Joseph's family, into the house and lineage of David. When God chose a king for his people Israel, it was David that he chose, a little shepherd from a little town. And now, centuries later, right under the nose of Caesar Augustus, emperor of Rome and of the whole known world, God is raising up another king, again from this little place, from the old and forgotten house of David. The angel tells us also that this savior will be called the Christ. Christ is the Greek word, Messiah is the Hebrew word, and in English they both just mean the anointed one. David was anointed when God chose him to be king. The prophet Samuel came and poured some oil on his head to show that he was the one chosen by God. But this savior will be anointed to do much more than his ancestor David, much more than any of the several people in the Bible who are anointed for some task or other. This one is the Christ, the anointed one, the one anointed by God to do the thing most important to God. And wonder of wonders, the angel calls this child not only Savior and Christ, but even Lord. In the language of the New Testament, that word, Lord, can sometimes refer to merely human rulers, but overwhelmingly, it's used to refer to the supreme ruler, the Lord God of Israel. And I think that is its meaning here. This passage has already used the word Lord twice, right? When it spoke about the angel of the Lord and the glory of the Lord. Well, now the word is used for a third time. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Yes, this newborn child is the one to whom that angel and that glory belong. This newborn child is the Lord God of Israel. God has not merely sent a savior to his people, he has become the savior of his people. What God wants more than anything is to bring us to himself, that we might live with him forever. That's the task for which God the Father has anointed God the Son. That's the prize for which God was willing to be born. Unto you, for your benefit, for your salvation, a Savior is born, who is Christ the Lord. Well, it sounds pretty good, but how can we know this is true? How can God persuade us, mistrustful sinners, that he really is at work to save us? How can we know? Well, the angel gives the shepherds a sign in verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This will be a sign for you. The angel's description of the baby helps the shepherds recognize the one of whom he's been speaking. You will find him wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger in an animal's feed trough. This is maybe a little bit helpful because probably there are several babies in Bethlehem and likely many of them are swaddled, but only the savior will be found lying in a manger. But the angel is doing much more than just giving directions. This will be a sign for you, he says. 
you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The baby himself, the angel is saying, the baby himself and the humble circumstances of his birth will be a sign. A sign of what? A sign that God really loves us, that he really wants to save us from sin that endangers us so that we can meet him and live with him forever. This is a sign that he's really doing something about our sin, that he's not abandoning us to it, but coming after us to save us. This baby, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, is a sign, the sign, that God is at work to save us. And perhaps some of us think it's not a very impressive or persuasive sign. A baby? So what? We've seen many babies before, right? If God wants to convince us that he's at work in the world, shouldn't he do something out of the ordinary? Shouldn't he show us something heavenly, something bright and glorious? The appearance of the multitude of angels and the divine glory shining all around the shepherds. Aren't these the more interesting and persuasive parts of the story? Shouldn't those things be the sign? Well, yes, the Lord made his heavenly angels appear before the shepherds. And he made his radiant glory shine all around them. That's true. But these things were not the ultimate sign. All of that, the angels, the glory, all of that was just to point the shepherds to something better and more wonderful. This will be the sign for you. Not the angels, not the glory, but the baby. The baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So now let's leave the angels and the glory in the fields. We'll leave them there and go with the shepherds to see this great and wonderful sign, to see this thing which the Lord has made known to them. Let's skip to verse 16. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Notice how sparse Luke's description is here. They went and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Just one short sentence, just a few plain words to describe this famous scene. I think Luke doesn't write very much here because there wasn't very much to see. It didn't really look the way it looks in the paintings or on the Christmas cards. There were no angels sitting up in the rafters. Nobody had a halo. The baby wasn't illuminated with a mysterious glow. We've left the angels and the radiance behind in the fields. Here, there's only a baby lying in a manger. A poor, probably dirty, ordinary human baby. Friends, here is the reason for heaven's gladness. Here is the sign that can turn earth's terror into rejoicing. The sight of the Lord God of heaven, born a true human. He who was begotten of the Father before the world was made is now born in the world. He who is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, has now become a true human person. He who is of one divine nature with the Father and the Son. Uh, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, has taken into his person 
our human nature, the same human nature that you and I share, that's what we also now share with the eternal Son of God. So yes, the Lord has become a true human. He's not disguised as a human. He's not pretending to be a human. No, he has truly become a human. His birth is a real human birth. He doesn't magically teleport out of Mary's womb. He's born in the normal human way. He doesn't have any superpowers. The newborn savior doesn't immediately get up and start walking and talking and performing miracles. No, he's weak and floppy like any other newborn. And his capacities are very limited like those of any other baby. He's not cuter than other babies. He has no supernatural attractiveness. No, as the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 53, verse 2, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. His birth is a real human birth. And as all who are born die, his death will be a real human death. When the adult savior is nailed to the cross, he doesn't take some superhuman shortcut around the pain of his torture. No, he feels it all. He suffers it all in his body. When he breathes his last and dies, he isn't faking. He's really dead. The body that his friends lay in the tomb is a real human corpse. Even now in his resurrection and ascension, and even when he comes again, the body of our Savior is a true human body. The mind of our Savior is a true human mind. He doesn't stop being God. He is still what he always has been, the eternal Son of God. But he is now something else too, a true human person. He is true God and true man. So do you want to know if God really loves humankind? Do you want to know if he's really at work to save us? Then this will be a sign for you. Look at the baby, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. See that the true God has become a true human person for your sake. This is the sight that made the angels glad. This is the sign that made the shepherds rejoice. The Lord is born for you to meet you as your Savior. Amen.